again. So we are um, in the book of Hebrews, one of the easiest books in the Bible to preach. It's not. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we'll start at verse 15. We'll actually run through the chapter today. Um, It's the second week in a row that we've changed what we initially had planned. Um, And again, that's because of the book of Hebrews being so easy. I want you to imagine something for a moment. I'm going to say a a four-letter word. It's not a bad word, but it is a four-letter word. Imagine having a loan. And imagine having this loan that you've been paying off as long as you can remember. You're making all the payments on time. You're, 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 you're doing everything that you're supposed to do. You're not in default or anything like that. But this loan just seems to be never-ending. No matter how much you put into it, no matter how long you've been paying, it's never-ending. Just imagine that loan. It's kind of a miserable thought initially, right? So imagine doing that. And then imagine one day you log in to make your payment because, you know, that's what we do. We don't do auto payments anymore. Imagine you log in and make your payment, and the balance is zero, paid in full. You call the bank, and they just tell you it was paid. Somebody came in and just paid it. Like, how is that possible? You didn't make a deal with anybody. There was no under-the-table deals that you made. There was no no creditor you contacted. There was no lawyer that you, it was just paid in full. No explanation. Now think about that in relationship with Jesus. That's basically what he did for you and I. We didn't have, we didn't do anything to earn our sins to be forgiven in full. Yet they have been. And it was because of the price he paid. It was, it was him taking care of that debt that you and I have. It has been paid in full. Again, that's something that just blows my mind every single day I think about it. So we're going to see that again as, as we, we dip into this, this passage this morning. And uh, when he died, he went to that cross. When he died, that sinner's death, that criminal's death, that's what happened. And that's what helped us to see and to experience what we just talked about just a moment ago. And, and because of that, he paid those debts in full, and we are declared forgiven. So I want to start with verse 15, Hebrews chapter 9. A little bit of a long uh, section, but it is uh, very worth uh, the reading. Uh, Verse 15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And for a will takes effect not only at only at death, since it's not in excuse me, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now appear to the presence and the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as he... But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly awaiting for him. There's a lot there. I'm going to just jump right in. And here's our main idea that I, I think uh, we can pull from this passage, that the blood of Jesus provided a final solution for our redemption. The blood of Jesus provided a final solution for redemption. So we've discussed this problem, if you will, over the past several weeks, this problem that this old covenant and that old covenantal sacrificial system was not sufficient, nor was it final or complete. That's the problem that we've been talking about. So if you really think about it, what we saw um, in, in the copy of this, and, and really if you think about what this solution looks like, this is not a new solution. This was introduced all the way back in the garden. All the way back in the garden, we actually see this solution as a prototype in Genesis 3.21. And for most of the kids in this room, it should sound very familiar. Genesis 3.21 reads this way. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve... Adam and his and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You guys remember that? Yeah. This tells us that blood and sacrifice has always been part of this system of redemption. And, and as an act of worship, we also see this clearly with Abel and his example back in Genesis 4. And we also see that with Noah and his example in, in, in Genesis chapter 8. So we see this example all throughout early, early on in our, in our history. But because of this shift, and that's what we're talking about in Hebrews, this shift from the old way of, of doing things and this new and improved way of doing things, we can become comforted. We can be comforted in the fact that Jesus finished that work that was begun back in that time. So I think this passage breaks into like basically two major parts. And of course, major parts, they always have their subpoints. The two major parts of this passage is really found in verses 15 through 22, and then verses 23 to 28. Verse 15 kind of acts almost like a summary statement of the entire passage. And uh, verses 18 to 22 can function as an example of what we'll see in verses 16 and 17. You following that so far? And then verses 23 to 28, it, it, therefore, it kind of draws the conclusion of 15 through 22. There's a quiz on the back of your bulletin that I want you to fill those blanks in, all right? Now, so what we'll do is we're going to try to use, in part, uh, this kind of natural break to kind of piece together the rest of our time this morning. And what I want to do is I want to answer a question that I hinted at a few moments ago. And that question is, is how can the blood of Jesus comfort us? And I think a big part of that comes with what we believe. So we're going to kind of use that, that idea of belief as we kind of navigate through this passage. So the first thing I think that we need to believe to answer that question is that our salvation, if you have been called, our salvation is a gift from God. 
So verse 15, the writer identifies who he's speaking to as those who are called. And this is a, a callback and maybe a hint to what we saw all the way back in, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, which I'm sure each of us remember that clearly, that who share in a heavenly calling. That's who he addressed part of this message to back in Hebrews 3, chapter, uh, verse th- uh, 1. So he calls them here those who are called. In chapter 3, he says those who share in a heavenly calling. So that's kind of that inheritance that he was talking about a little bit earlier. So we know that the writer is speaking of those who have, been, have already received this inheritance. So this idea of, of redemption is obviously something we need to talk through, and we'll, we'll kind of talk through this a little bit more throughout the, the morning. This idea of redemption speaks to this final payment of, of this debt this final payment of this debt that you and I have been unable and incapable of repaying. And that, that's only payable through Jesus Christ. And I would contend that verse 15, really, if you just take it alone, it's kind of hard to understand fully without looking at verses 16 and 17, where he gives us a little bit of an illustration of what he's talking about. And because these verses help us to understand what an inheritance looks like, I should have my wife actually preach this portion of it. Right? And, and, and the inheritance works as a, under an illustration of a will. That's what he's talking about. He's using the, the illustration of a will as he's talking about this. And he's saying that in a simple, pro, in a simple way, he's saying that the writer is, is basically saying that, that a will cannot be executed without the death of, those, of the one who, who, who wrote the will. So death was necessary. And this is an inheritance, which means it's a gift. It's a gift from one person to another. So when we break down this section, we actually have a good and clearer picture of what it looks like and why Jesus actually had to die in order for this to occur. And this passage describes this reason of why the shedding of blood was important and specifically why Jesus' blood that was pure was the only blood that was sufficient. And this is why we, we really can celebrate his death. The whole idea of Good Friday is really tied into this idea here. And this, idea, this is why we can, and the reason for that, again, is because we know that he died for us, and we know how the story ends because he gave us the ending to that. And that leads us, I think, to our next point, and we need to believe this. We need to believe that the shedding of blood, as, as already hinted at, was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. That's, a, that's kind of a dark image, if you think about it. This is kind of a dark image, and it's not a, a very comforting image on the onset, which I recognize. We're going to get there, so don't worry. And I think to help understand this best, let's take a look at what the Scriptures say. Romans 6.23 tells us this, very well-known verse, I think. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that helps us to understand this more clearly. So if, if death was the, the, the penalty of sin, we have a better understanding of why this had to happen. So recall we looked at verse 22 last week, this idea of the forgiveness of sin only available uh, through the shedding of blood most of the time. So it says here that there, the, when, when he uses that term in the ESV, which is the translation that we normally use here, uh, the forgiveness of sins, that term there, in the Greek it refers to the, a pardon, a pardon of sin, a release of sin, a, a, a remission of sin, which is translated in a lot of the other English uh, versions. And this is to say that, again, we've been set free and we've been released of our debt. 
Another important word that's used in this passage, particularly 19 to 23, is this, this idea of purification. So this idea of purification appears in this section here. It's not explicitly used in verse 19, but it's definitely implied, and the concept is there. And the writer uses Exodus chapter 24 and Numbers chapter 19 as a couple of examples uh, of this purification process. Exodus passage shows us that the old covenant and how it was affirmed by the people and by Moses. It says it was sprink- the blood was sprinkled on the, on the book and then the blood was sprinkled on the people. And then in, in, in chapter, uh, so after these words were, were read and affirmed, this is, this is what happened. And then the mention of water and scarlet wool and hyssop was not a part of that original affirmation, but that happens in, in chapter, in Numbers 19, in the example of the heifer. So the writer says in verse 18, and that's why he's confident to say this, that the old covenant was, was inaugurated by blood. So blood again was necessary for that idea of purification. So the shedding of blood was, again, no new concept. We saw this a few moments ago. We saw this with the example of Adam and Eve being covered. We saw this with, with Abel and his sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And we saw that with Noah as he exited the ark. The first thing he did was he built an altar to pray and to worship his Lord. And then the writer continues in verse 23 saying that it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with blood. Commentator F.F. Bruce says it this way uh, in his paraphrase of this verse. He says, while ritual purification is adequate for the material order, which is but an earthly copy of the spatial order, a better kind of sacrifice is necessary to effect purification in the spiritual order. So what he's really saying and what he's pointing out is that, that there's a, a comment at the end of that verse that's really, really important and that he speaks of a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice. And of course, we know that refers directly to Jesus. In this illustration, the writer affirms that the earthly copies had to be purified. But, the, the, but Jesus was pure. And Jesus was the only one pure. And it was him. And because of that, he was able to usher in the new covenant with that sacrifice that he made. And in doing so, it gives us confidence and comfort in this world today. Next thing we see here, and the next thing I think we need to believe and understand is that the sacrifice was final and complete. The sacrifice was final and complete. So in this final section, the writer describes what could be considered the perfect sacrifice. Right? One that's final, it's binding, it's complete, and then where the blood was pure, because the blood of Christ was pure, And that was the substance of everything that everything else was pointing to. And then verse 24 uses the phrase made with hands, and that's to illustrate the fact that the tabernacle was built with hands. The hands that killed and sacrificed these animals were built with hands. But it's an interesting term, and it's actually, um, it refers a lot in the New Testament to idolatry. And it connects directly to this idea of idolatry. In Acts chapter 17, Paul uses this term to address the Athenians who built their pagan temples with their own hands. And then in Ephesians, Paul, in Ephesians 2, Paul uses that same term to speak about circumcision, which I, we know is another, another picture and another covenantial type action. But he uses it that. And again, he's, he's critiqued, the, the writer of Hebrews is critiquing the tabernacle 
But he's not, of course, doing it because, you know, that was something that we saw last week, that this was ordained by God and it was a command by God. So we know that it had his function in that time. And the critique was really because it was a model of things to come. It wasn't, a, you know, telling God he made a mistake. It was because, you know, this was a model. And, and unfortunately, the people of that time, they lost sight of what that really meant. So we're reminded again that these old sacrifices, these Old Testament, these Old Covenant sacrifices, they, they weren't enough, and, and they did not take away that sin. It was something that just basically covered it for a, a moment. It was a temporary covering. And this is why it had to be done again and again. And that's where this idea of remission and redemption, they contrast a bit. Um, remission was really that temporary covering of sin, whereas that redemption was a final, final uh, thing. So Christ's redemptive act, if you, you know, it's really a critical truth for us today. And I, I saw this one Bible study on this area, and I like the way this person put it. It says that, that this, um, this, this event was, it means that Jesus' death is the climax of human history. Everything before it was building up to it, and everything since is affected by it. Nice, simple way of putting it, I think. And I think because of this, we can have assurance of our faith, and because of this, we can have assurance and know that we have eternal life in Jesus. And again, if you really think about this whole idea, it is alluding to this idea of death, and death is not something that any of us really like to think about. It's not a, a comforting thing to think about. Um, but the writer makes a very interesting point. He says, we're all assigned and appointed to die once. And because of Jesus' final work, when we do die, we're in his presence for eternity in a place that no longer has that sin that affects our bodies and affects the evil in this world and again, I know this doesn't sound very comforting and exciting, and I'm sure you guys are just like, yes, this is good stuff, right? We can be confident, and we can be comforting knowing that this stop on earth is a temporary stop because we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and we will be in that presence of the Lord for those who are called. <laughs> so are you confident this morning? Are you comforted this morning because of that truth? I know I am. And because, and, and I think again, it, it kind of takes us back to our main idea. We, we can be comforted because we're reminded that the blood of Jesus provided that final solution for redemption. And I think that's one of the best things and the best news that we can turn on and hear. I can't imagine living in those times and, and thinking about those daily rituals and those, those, those annual atonement and, and the daily sacrifices and, and the feasts and then this and then that, and, you know, and those 613 commandments that we were required to follow. I couldn't imagine living in that time. Because, frankly, we have a hard time today if I hit the light a few times on the way to church. Right? If we get stuck behind that train on Cortero, you know, on the way to Walmart, I think it drives me crazy. We have a hard enough time with those kind of things. Can you imagine having to live up to those expectations of these daily sacrifices and these 613 commandments? That would drive me bonkers. I would not be a very good Jew. When Christ does all the work, that burden's been removed. 
And we, you know, I, but again, we just, we fret over the, the silly things and the little things. And those things, those day-to-day things, we still fret over those things. And I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the guilty party here for sure. But instead, we need to be concerned over heavenly things. We need to be concerned over those who don't know the Lord. That's where our concern can be. That's where our worries should be held. Those who are sick, those who are hurting, et cetera, et cetera. And then because Christ had suffered the death of countless sinners and countless sin, and again, we can be comforted because that includes you and me. So here's, here's what I want to do to finish our morning. What do we do now? Next step. What are the next steps that we can take right now in this moment? So there's two categories of people I'll be talking to. The first one would be if, if you're a follower of Jesus already, this is what I think are, are, are for you. The first thing is we need to be get ready for Jesus. We need to get ready for Jesus. Well, what does that mean? We can get ready by sharing him with others, as we just talked about. I know we talk about this pretty often, but this is one of those ways we can show that we love others. If you love someone and you look at somebody and you say you love them and you know that they're, they're a sinner that has not been saved by grace, we need to be sharing the Lord with them because we love them. We can get ready by serving others. Last week we talked about this, like, this concept that the writer of Hebrews introduced, that, that serving is an act of worship. And Paul confirms that in, in, in Romans 12.1. And, and serving others is one way we can be ready for him. And, and part of that might mean just being an encouraging individual to others. Praying for one another. Those are ways we can serve and be ready and get ready for the Lord. We can also get ready by just continuing to work. We've got to continue working. We've got we to make sure we're moving. Right? We can't sit idly like the Thessalonians were. We can't sit idly like that. We can also get ready by pursuing righteousness. I saved the best one for last, the easiest one for last. We need to pursue righteousness. This isn't easy. We do this through obedience. We do this by getting closer and closer to him so we can better understand his heart. And when we spend that time with him, I'll tell you what, from experience, when we spend that time with him, that I was quote-unquote idle moments that we have, it is a lot harder to sin when you're worshiping God. It's a lot harder to sin when you're praying and reading his word. So you've got to spend that time with him to allow him to, to build into your life. And that includes when, when we are tempted, the Bible doesn't say we're not going to be tempted. He says when there is temptation. When we're tempted, we've got to run. And we've got to run to him in those moments. You know, that's, that's one of the things that he, he, he commands us to do. Second thing for, the, for those who are already followers of Jesus, don't add to Jesus. Don't add to Jesus. Adding to Jesus is a form of idolatry. And I think it's, it's something that we need to be careful about, particularly when we, when we look online for, you know, those, those famous online pastors or those famous online preachers or those mega churches and, and those who have a two trillion followers on their social media accounts. We need to be careful about who we're reading, who we're listening to, and, and what we're reading. And unfortunately, the reason for that is a lot of people are, are, are more interested in fame and fortune than they are in reaching people for Jesus. 
So they might tell you something that you want to hear versus telling you something that you need to hear. And then Scripture interprets Scripture. That's a key principle. Scripture interprets Scripture, so if, if we need to turn to the Word of God first to understand what the Word of God is saying. That should always be that starting point. Even these programs, Pastor Pat mentions this evangelism explosion thing pretty regularly, even these programs that are, are really well-intent, you know, these discipleship path booklets and things like that, these are all really good intentional things, but sometimes if we say pick up that book and that becomes gospel, then we're in trouble. We have to recognize that there's not only one way outside of Jesus, there's not only one way to do something. So if you're, a fo- if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would contend these are the couple things for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I would argue that you need to act now. You need to act now. First step in that is to believe. First step is that to believe that God is who God says he is. He's the creator God. He is Lord of all. We must believe that Christ is the Savior of the world. We must believe that he is the Son of God. We must believe that he is the one true king. And we must believe that believing in him, we can have eternal life. And we must believe that when Christ died, that gave us forgiveness of our sin. And if you do believe, then that means you, should, you need to confess. You need to confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You need to believe and, and confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And then once you're able to do that, you need to repent. Repentance is a, a word that we use often to, to illustrate the idea of turning away from your sin and turning to God and completely, completely changing your course. And that's the idea of repentance. Second thing that I think nonbelievers need to do is get involved in a local body, local church. And if, if you come here and you, you use this church as, as part of that method, that's fantastic. We'd love to have you, but that doesn't mean you need to be here. You don't need to be here. It could be anywhere, but I would say if you go somewhere, make sure that they are teaching the Word of God. Make sure they're teaching the Word of God and make sure that there are other believers surrounding you. It is incredibly important that we are surrounded by believers and at a church that trusts the Lord and teaches his word. I would even say attend Bible studies or small groups where they're they're learning about God together. If nothing else, you can listen. You can listen to some of the things that they're discussing and take notes and journal and understand what they're talking about because some of those discussions at Bible studies are incredibly uplifting and encouraging And sometimes they wrap your mind around where you have more questions, which is okay. And these are great and useful to ask these questions that you're just unsure about. And it helps you to develop your relationship better. And nobody in this room that's been here for more than a few weeks, this won't be a surprise to any of you, read your Bible. Read your Bible. And, And I'm sure we all had to know that was coming. It's critical. We call the Bible the Word of God, and we affirm that, we believe that wholeheartedly, and we hold firmly to that, that it's God's inspired Word. This is where we most clearly hear His voice, right? This is where we most clearly, I've heard pastors say, I, you know, God told me this morning, 
that's a red flag for me. The Bible said, (laughs) that's a little bit more clear to me. Find a simple and systematic way to read the Bible. There are countless ways to do that. Some Bibles actually give you a reading plan. I have several that I have saved in a folder. I'll be happy to give one to you if you need it. Pray daily and often. Again, you had to know this was coming. Pray daily and often. So if God's speaking to us through his word, then that means we can speak to him through prayer. It's that two-way communication. Many of us have the bad habit of only praying when we need something. Some of us have a habit of doing that, and I've been there too. And then instead, what we need to do is what Paul encouraged the Thessalonians is to pray always. Pray without ceasing. I'm going to give you a quick example. Many of you know this, but I worked in hotels for 20 years, just shy of 20 years. And, and one of the things that we learned in one of our basic training points from a service perspective, and this was for anybody in the hotel, is we call it the time of day greeting. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Simple, simple way of doing things. We actually had a rule, what we called the 15-5 rule. 15 feet, you're making eye contact with somebody. Within five feet, when you're more audible to them, you, you give them that, day, that time of day greeting. Right? So they know that you see them and that you're ready to serve them. So I did that everywhere. Grocery store, walking down the street, anywhere I was, restaurants, I'd do that anywhere. Right? I don't do it as much anymore. It's kind of no longer a habit, unfortunately. But just imagine the look that you get from other people. Like, hey, good morning. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> right? That's what we used to get all the time. You know, or, or we used to get in the habit of, of picking up something. If you see a piece of trash on the floor, we kind of assume the guy behind us is going to pick it up, so we used to pick that trash up. And I don't know how many times during my day I reached into my pockets and my suit coat and like got a whole bunch of trash because I picked it up throughout the day and threw it in my coat and moved on. I used to do that too. See something on the floor, pick it up, throw it in my pocket. And I go, like, you're not working right now. You're not getting paid right now, Ryan. What are you doing? Or my favorite is opening up the door. I used to be the unofficial greeter and door opener at the Applebee's. Open up the door, 15 people walk through. It's like, where are you all sitting? Like, there's no seats. I'm already waiting 30 minutes, but I'm just letting people in. And, and the point of that is, is simple. I was always ready. I was always ready just to, to be ready to serve somebody else and to greet somebody and be hospitable. It was part of that makeup, part of that training that I received. So we need to be always ready. And this is what we need to do with prayer. We need to always be ready in prayer, right? When you, you know, I, early, early on, I don't do this as often, shame on me, early on in my, my Christianity, my walk with God, seeing an ambulance drive by me, I used to just say a quick prayer. I don't know what's happening. I don't know where they're going, who they're going to, what the situation called for. I used to just pray about it. You know, and I, I think some of us need to do more of that, right? First thing that happened last week when, when I saw the news of this shooting in Texas that just broke my heart. First thing I did was I prayed. I'm like, man, this is horrible. This is horrible. These kids, these teachers, horrendous. Just prayed for those victims and their families in that small town. So here's what I would say. If you're ready to take any step, 
anything that you need to do, taking that next step in your walk with Jesus, Pastor Pat and myself and the elders would be just thrilled to speak to you. We would love to speak to you more. We would love to, to have a better understanding of what you're looking for, where you're at in your walk with Jesus, and help you to develop that more. Early church, if you really think about it, they had a hard time. They had it much harder than we do today, I would say. But we do have their example to lean on, and, and the scriptures tell us that that's kind of why we have this, this document, this, these historical documents available. We can, we can lean on their example and learn from it. And we also, today we have the Holy Spirit, because when Jesus left this earth, he said, I'm going to give you a comforter. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. So we have the Holy Spirit that helps us and guides us and interprets things for us. And the Bible even says he speaks on our behalf when we don't have the words. He intercedes for us when we don't have the words. And we have the Bible that we can learn from. We have a book that we can pick up 1,500 languages on our devices. And again, we take that for granted. So if anything else, when we're reading the book of Hebrews, number one, and, and first and foremost, we need to be thankful for the work that Jesus did, that final work that allowed us to be where we are now. But we also should have a better understanding and a better appreciation of the Old Testament. There's churches that don't preach the Old Testament, period. It's foundational. But we should have a better understanding of the Old Testament and these books and this book here that helps us to see that everything pointed to Jesus, even way back then. So I'm gonna, uh, I want to read a quote to you before we conclude. This is uh, from a theologian, Louis Speary Schaefer, and he says this, True salvation is wholly a work of God. It is said to be both a finished work and a gift. And therefore, it lays no obligation upon the saved one to complete it for himself or to make payments or service for it. That's what we're talking about this morning. And because of that, because of that, we can have comfort in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word that does give us comfort, that does give us peace, that allows us to understand you and to draw closer to you. We thank you so much for that. We thank you, God, for, um, for fellowship that allows us to gather with other believers that help us to, to draw closer to each other and build that family that you have assigned to us and, and, and that we just pray, God, for you to continue to work through the lives of each and every one of us in this room. Help us to draw closer to you through your word. Help us to remember the work that Jesus did daily so we can have comfort and understanding and having that assurance of faith that so many people, they struggle with. And just pray, God, that you give us that confidence, that you give us that comfort, and that you allow us, God, to just draw closer to you in this time. Taking a break from that for a moment, I just want to pray, God, for the people in Texas. Again, they're on my heart right now. What a, what a tragedy, Lord. And, and, and there's so many viewpoints of what happened and why, but I think we just need to confess and understand, God, that we're that this world needs your son, Jesus. This world needs your son, Jesus. This world needs your son, Jesus, so bad. There's evil that's running rampant in our world, and that's the cause of all these things. The cause is sin and this, this, this hatred that people hold in their hearts. So, God, we just pray for the people of Uvalde, Texas, and just ask, God, that you just give them peace and comfort in an incredibly difficult and impossible way. Um, in an impossible time for them and their families. We just lift up those 
those victims' families to you and anybody else who's been impacted by that. also want to just take a moment, Father, to, to recognize and to thank you, God, for uh, as we, we go into this long weekend where we typically forget of, of, of what this weekend is all about, those who have given their lives on behalf of the country that they have protected. So we just want to recognize and, again, understand and, and thank you, Father, for the freedoms we do have because of the actions of so many. We just want to thank you for that. And I'll just lift this time to you, God. We want to thank you for it. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Uh, so.